POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. This week, we're joined by John Waterbury of Princeton University and the former president of the American University of Beirut, speaking about his new book, Missions Impossible, Higher Education and Policymaking in the Arab World. We'll also hear from Irene Vipert-Fenner of the Peace Research Institute of Frankfurt, speaking about her new article, Go Local, Go Global, Studying Popular Protests in the Middle East and North Africa Post-2011. Finally, we'll hear from Mariam Sadehi of the Berlin Social Science Center, speaking about her article, Trying Just Enough or Promising Too Much, The Problem Capacity Nexus in Tunisia's Transitional Justice Process. Thanks for joining us. This is the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. We're joined now by Irene Weipert-Fenner of the Peace Research Institute of Frankfurt. She's talking about her new article, Go Local, Go Global, Studying Popular Protests in the Middle East and North Africa Post-2011. It's part of the special issue in Mediterranean politics. Irene, thank you so much for joining us. Hello, Mark. Thanks so much for having me. So tell us about your contribution to the special issue. Well, um, it first might sound a bit academic what I did. I really wanted to look at uh, protest research on the MENA region post 2011. Um, of course, I mean, 2011 was such an important year for us uh, studying the region and protests were at the center of it. So protest research was booming right afterwards. And of course it would be like kind of an academic exercise to say uh, what has happened, what have we achieved, where challenges left, but it's also deeply political to me. Because now as we have the 10 years anniversary of the Arab uprisings, um, you could see in public and political discourse that the story of Arab uprisings somehow, at least in the public opinion, uh, stopped with 20, well, let's say 13 or 14, at least from a European perspective. You know, it was like a big boom in 2011 and what was left of it basically only Tunisia, Egypt was back to an autocracy and the rest was just civil war. And this is where the MENA region ended. And in this public discourse, um, no one really took notice of what we call the second wave of uprisings in 2019, talking about Algeria and Sudan, Iraq and Lebanon. And for me, it was also important to write this article to be well prepared for more protests to come and also to understand how protests have evolved since 2011, um, the things we learned from 2011 in order to follow up on protests that are going to, well, increase for sure in the future. And for that, I looked at um, well, three main aspects. So I was wondering how uh, protests and outcome of protests um, were judged uh, by political sciences more in general. And I looked second mm -hmm. into social movement theory and advances that we made there. And third, looked at political economy approaches um, and made an argument on how to advance social movement theory in combination with political economy approaches. So it's very interesting the way you approach uh, uh, these uh, these protests. Um, and uh, maybe we can just talk it through kind of in the order you just uh, described. And then there's some other uh, questions that I wanted to uh, throw at you. But let's start with this um, uh, the evaluation of the significance and outcome of protest. And you push back against uh, the framing that this is all about success or failure, that if it's not democracy, then it didn't matter. Exactly. I mean, this is maybe the most important lesson, not only for the academic world, but really also for the political and public discourse in Europe, and I would say also in the US. Um, what we saw right after the uprising, first of course was euphoria, right? So mm -hmm. finally, MENA has also reached uh, the democratic era. And so the evaluation of protests um, in, in this regard was really led by a structuralist approach to understand what kind of structures ultimately led to the breakdown of authoritarian regimes and to the shift of democracy. So the benchmark that was used was to say why democracy had to come in now. And as I said before, um, euphoria came to an end quite quickly, um, latest with a military coup, but of course, because of the civil wars in Syria and Libya, high internationalized conflicts and uh, uh, like human tragedies, not for sure. Um, so there was a quick shift 
to understand the uprisings as a complete failure. And suddenly we had a lot of research been done on, on explaining why uh, most of these cases fail. And Asawi and Cavatorta just put it nicely in a recent book saying that kind of the pattern that emerged was like explaining why protests worked and that was only Tunisia in the mm -hmm. end, and why it failed in all other cases. And what you can see here is really that the benchmark was success and democratization. It was not authoritarian breakdown, because then Egypt, well, you can discuss it, but 2011 certainly was a massive shakeup of the authoritarian the Mubarak regime, but it was really about uh, democracy coming into the region. And uh, again, we had a lot of um, structural explanations like security apparatus were too strong or the civil society too weak to really push for democracy. Um, and there were a lot of explanations why certain countries uh, were not seeing any mass mobilization. There was the higher legitimacy of monarchies, um, the civil war argument. And I'm not saying that structures as such or like these kind of variables are wrong per se, but, and I think this is what the like social movement theory literature shows us, it's about the perceptions of these structures. And these perceptions can change quickly. So you should be prepared um, for things to change, for more protests to erupt. And this is exactly what happened in 2019. I really like the way that you, you frame this discussion of outcomes in the article. Um, you, you say you're against short-term and fixed outcomes. Because right, you know, 2011, Egypt looked like a success. And if you're writing two years later, it looks like a failure. And that really isn't a very helpful way of thinking about what's happening with these people on the ground and, and the types of things that they're doing and the kinds of changes they're making to society and the state. So tell us a little bit more about how you think about the impacts of, um, of, of protest beyond this democracy, not democracy dichotomy. I think it's helpful um, to look at the repertoire of uh, analysis that social movement theory has on offer. And I think this also shows um, different outcomes or impact social movements can have. Um, so by now, just for everyone who's not that familiar maybe with the recent state of the art of social movement research, um, uh, the old social movement theory was often criticized for being structuralist uh, itself, right? So right now we are looking more at relations and interactions between protesters and different kinds of actors. So we look at uh, relations between protesters or different groups that form alliances. So this was something that was done uh, in the research uh, in the past that is very fruitful, I think, to understand how coalitions form uh, cross ideological, how they intersect with other kinds of conflict lines, identity conflict lines, um, how uh, networks, also pre-existing like pre networks, um, influence and enable mobilization, how different types of um, movement, contentious actions, even counter movements influence each other. So this is the, the, the societal level. And then you have for societal organized actors. We had a lot of studies now on, on trade unions and their um, interrelation with protest movements, how did they play a role? Of course, it was different in different contexts, but this is something that you can also track and see changes in here. You can see the relation between protesters and parties, uh, attitudes towards parties. I mean, mm -hmm. one crucial thing was uh, the leaderlessness of these uh, protest movements in 2011. So how do relations of, between parties and social movements change? And of course, most importantly, and that's the, the original idea of the contentious politics approach, how does the relation between protest actors and the state change? And what we saw here was really to disaggregate the state as an actor, disaggregate state responses, um, in terms of like repression, concessions, ignoring, and not only to see this as a like a rational, um, like from a game theoretical perspective, but to understand the role of emotions, for instance, right? And in all these kind of uh, relations, you can track changes and you can have a long durée. You can look at like it from a long-term perspective and see changes um, in actions, but also in beliefs and perceptions of previous experiences and ongoing actions. And one of the points you make, which I think is really important is that by taking that kind of approach, you're now engaging with the state of the art of literature, not just the Middle East literature, but the social movement literature more broadly. And you make a very nice uh, case for thinking about this in terms, not just of the Middle East, but the global South and calling for cross-regional, cross-country comparisons. What do you think you gain by adopting that kind of comparative approach? 
this is really one center uh, message of my um, of my article. Um, first of all, and um, the question is with what kind of regions, which regions would you compare? What would make sense? What we've seen so far um, is a lot of uh, actually uh, single case studies, which is honestly kind of typical for social movement studies in general. And then we look at it from a regional perspective. And we can see that particularly in the global south, um, so-called of area studies, um, knowledge production remains concentrated in the respective area study. And there is less exchange between different uh, area studies in the global south compared to uh, linking our results back to the global north. Um, what well, we can learn from uh, intra-global South comparisons is, first of all, we have um, more similar contexts to compare with in different regards. Of course, not in general, but we can find similar contexts in regard to colonial, post-colonial settings. Um, this is very important when it comes to external actors, their legitimacy, but also the role of the state and a number of, uh, of factors. The economy. Um, of course, at the height of the 2011 uprisings and later on, there, were, there was the political order, but there was also the socioeconomic order that was uh, really the driving force um, for actors to go to the street. Um, having uh, like maybe similar position in the global economic order, um, also maybe similar uh, structures in terms of informal sectors, right? Mm -hmm. Um, all these factors are more similar in regions in the global south without saying that they are identical. So this is more from the content side. I make another argument in the text to say we can learn a lot um, when we exchange as area study scholars with other uh, area studies experts um, to understand knowledge production, um, to understand why we felt excluded from the general social movement literature for some time, how we link back to it. I don't know if you remember that the Islamist uh, uh, social movement scholars for, for quite some time in the 90s tried to defend that also Islamists were rational actors that we could apply social movement theory to. There's similar developments uh, in sub-Saharan Africa who had to struggle to explain that tribal movements or tribal structures could also be like a modern phenomenon that can be treated by modern social science literature. Uh, so this is really revealing to understand that um, the global south and north uh, division played out in other contexts as well. But at the same time, we can also learn how to critically engage with this literature um, by looking at other areas like, for instance, Latin America that has a very developed, very sophisticated uh, social movement theory that challenged a lot of um, uh, um, uh, a lot of assumptions that are based on the global north experience, like democracy will foster uh, more organized protests, but instead found that fragmentation can be um, a result of democratization. So sort of things that can really also you know, enlighten um, and really inspire our expectations about what is to come next not in a deterministic way, but to open up perspectives on how the world can also develop in a different way compared to the global north and you know, it, its really predominant position in the global order. Let me ask you one last question. Um, and that's about the, at the end of the article, uh, you, you engage on this question, which is a theme that runs through the whole special issue about, uh, about data and access and new ways that we can study uh, things like protest in the Middle East. So tell us about some of these new methods and data that you've been exploring to try and um, to try and uh, study these movements. Yeah, uh, that's an important um, topic um, because, I mean, as I mentioned before on this like, bleak outlook on the MENA region, there's also this uh, this narrative uh, floating around that uh, doing research in the MENA currently is basically impossible and protest research is not you know, everything is like drawn into war and an autocracy and there's nothing we can do about it. And so first of all, field research is possible to different degrees and there were biases before in, in terms of access to the field also before 2011 and mm -hmm. these are still existent. So the new data access um, on the new um, uh, methods um, that we saw uh, developing and prospering now is first of all, um, protest event analysis, which is kind of a classic uh, in social movement theory. But what we saw really in the last years is uh, how large um, 
protest event data sets like GDELT or ACLED um, came up and, and suddenly promised access to comparative data on a global scale, but with also subnational data, which is so important because what we learned from protest research, apart from the mass mobilization, and it's really about subnational dynamics um, that we need to understand also in order to maybe predict mass mobilization, but that's another story. Um, so actually these large uh, data sets, they promise a lot, but the question is how good is the quality really? Um, mm -hmm. There's a lot of debate on, on uh, first of all, automatic uh, coded event data sets like GDAL. And there's a lot of criticism. This is like another special you know, discussion that you can have with right. someone else maybe. But for us more important, um, is that, for instance, ACLET, uh, the Armed Conflict Location Event Data Project, um, promised not to only rely on international media, but also to use local media. Right. And uh, this is interesting because, of course, we, we need, of, we all know that we need uh, Arabic newspapers in there, but what is local media really? Um, in, in competition to these large projects, there were a number of fascinating uh, to my extent, I think, or mostly PhD projects who created their own hand-coded event data sets based on local newspapers. But first of all, you of course need to have deep knowledge of a country to understand what kind of newspapers you pick. You need a balance depending on the conflict lines you have in a certain country, depending on the degree of repression. Um, you need to understand what kind of protests will make it into the newspaper, in which newspaper. So you really need to be a country expert to first establish this database. And then another major thing that uh, we should never forget is you need to cross-check this data, right? Mm -hmm. um, and there was some really fascinating uh, attempts. Like you, you can use official statistics, of course, if they are good. You can use NGO reports if you know, if they are helpful or if their quality is good. But then, of course, to also use a video and photo shooters that you can find on social media um, that can help you uh, really cross-check the data you, you gathered from the newspapers. And this is something, um, I think this will be, this really needs to be followed up, but the thing is it's highly labor-intensive. And so mm -hmm. what we've seen so far is, a lot of studies that focus on a few years, mostly on one country, which is great for go local. So one thing that I ask for, but it's difficult to really generate comparative data um, and then to really you know, link back to uh, uh, also regional, but also global uh, developments. And then the final thing I was thinking about out loud in the article is social media. Um, of course, particularly now, as we most of us are stuck uh, somewhere not in the Arab world, um, we we are looking for uh, access to uh, the field and social media uh, was promising um, a lot, and I think it's uh, it's very worth looking at it and to dis join the discussion because. Um, what we see now is a trend um, also coming with big data, you know, all this debate also about quantitative text analysis um, to, to get new insights by analyzing Twitter, for instance, or Facebook posts. Um, but we are like the debate is more sophisticated by now to simply say it's just a mirror. You know, when you take a look at Twitter uh, data, you will have a mirror of uh, mobilization. So this is actually how you uh, collect your data about a certain um, organization. You need like really in-depth knowledge of the movement itself, of the offline version of it. So we really need to know for each case how online and offline activism relate to each other. Um, and, and then there's of course the next slide, what about repression, right? Mobilization, mm -hmm. repression, mm -hmm. nexus, there's offline and online repression. How do they mutually uh, shape each other? And uh, so, so this is really something that is um, ongoing. There's also uh, you know, certain research on asking how the platforms and the activists shape each other. So uh, also given like autocratic context and these platforms behaving in certain ways, adapting to uh, the context to, to uh, remain to remain the access there. Um, it's, it's important to take social media not simply as a structure mm -hmm. that is out there, but again, having this constructivist perspective on, on how actors shape it and are shaped by them um, is really a, like a valuable 
additional source, but solely not the sole source to, to understand mobilization and protest in the MENA. Wonderful. We've been speaking with uh, Irene Vipert-Fenner about her new article, Go Local, Go Global, coming soon to a comprehensive exams reading list near you. Irene, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Mark, for having me. This is the Polemaps Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. We're joined now by Mariam Salehi of the Berlin Social Science Center. She's the author of a new article, Trying Just Enough or Promising Too Much, The Problem Capacity Nexus in Tunisia's Transitional Justice Process, which was just published in the Journal of Intervention and State Building. Mariam, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Mark, for inviting me. So tell us about this article. Yeah. Um... So the article has its origins uh, back in 2014 when I started my uh, field research in, in Tunisia. And um, Tunisia ha yeah, introduced a very um, comprehensive and um, yeah, ambitious transitional justice mandate, which um, covers almost six years of authoritarian rule and a large uh, amount of possible violations. And um, yeah, the transitional justice scene, uh, like scholars and also practitioners, they were very excited about um, the Tunisian mandate because, yeah, because it was so comprehensive and also because uh, it was covering social economic uh, grievances and um, accounting for them in the mandate. And um, the mandate, yeah, was um, yeah, into established the Truth Commission and the Truth Commission was supposed to, to deal with these grievances as well. And when I started my, my field research, um, I realized that my interview partners in Tunisia not necessarily shared this excitement about um, the comprehensive and ambitious mandate and were um, more skeptical about uh, whether this mandate would be feasible. And um, what I found really interesting and, and puzzling as that, at that time was that um, this feeling uh, or this, yeah, uh, I, I got this critique from, from different kinds of actors, from, from truth commissioners themselves, mm -hmm. from, from those who were involved in, in establishing the mandate, um, from politicians, so from all sides. And um, yeah, in this article, I, I tried to make sense of, of, um, of this mismatch. So tell us a little bit then uh, about the mandate and uh, and what exactly it covered and why this is unusual in transitional justice terms. Yeah, so the mandate goes back um, to the year uh, before independence. So it covers really, um, yeah, as I said, almost almost 60 yeah. years. And um, uh, this is a very long period of time for, um, for a truth commission mandate. And um, it, it um, yeah, it mandates the transitional justice institutions, so um, the Truth Commission, specialized chambers in the Tunisian court system, and later on um, also a reparations fund, which so far only exists in theory, to um, account for uh, different kinds of grievances and violations. And um, one of the very innovative things in the, um, in the mandate is that, for example, um, not only individuals could be considered victims in this truth commission mandates, but also um, regions. Um, so, um, yeah, marginalization of, of certain um, geographic areas in Tunisia um, is definitely one of the grievances that um, emerged from, from decades of dictatorship. So it makes sense in that regard that um, the transition justice mandate would, would also cover these issues. Um, but yeah, as I said, um, so this, this was perceived to be uh, kind of innovative and um, the two commission uh, was, um, yeah, had a very generous mandate also in, in, in operating time. So it had a four plus one year um, mandate. It was quite well resourced uh, for truth commission as well. Um, several hundred staff members uh, at peak times, um, yeah. And, and what it accomplished, um, despite all these problems, uh, maybe you could just describe that a little bit, because uh, they really did do a tremendous amount of, of work in, the, in those four years. Uh, yes, um, they, they did indeed. So they, um, they collected um, yeah, around 60,000 files and uh, did like, um, yeah, lots of uh, uh, 
hearings, individual hearings with uh, victims who submitted their files to the commission. And um, they also did lots of public hearing sessions um, over, over yeah, a period of time where they had um, victims who were pre-selected tell their stories and they, they had these um, sessions um, thematically clustered and um, by now I, I did some follow-up interviews via, via phone and, and video um, last year and most people would say that the public hearings they were kind of the biggest achievement of the Tooth Commission because they, um, they were broadcast on national television and they, they actually reached um, yeah, a large part, part of the population, which is often the problem with, with truth, truth commissions that they um, yeah, are supposed to not uh, being able to reach um, the population. And um, yeah, it also published uh, a final report. Um, the, um, yeah, um, and the final report, uh, it, it took quite some, some time um, until it was, uh, yeah, finally published in the in the official journal that just recently happened. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, but, I mean, but, but despite all of that, you think that um, it's some in some ways that uh, you found it um, disappointing. Um, I mean, I, I don't want to make these assessments, um, but I would say that my interview partners uh, would find the process right. disappointing. Uh, and, and for several reasons. And I mean, there, there were lots of um, political struggles uh, as well. And, um, but in, in that article, I, I concentrate on, on a different um, feature and that is that this ambitious mandate would actually um, be perceived as unfeasible quite from, right, from the right. start. Yeah. And so let's, let's talk through that a little bit then. Uh, so what were, the, what were the problems that were created and how did the transitional justice community kind of think about this in terms of the process as it was unfolding? Um, I mean, what, what I concentrate on uh, in the article are, are three things. And the first one is that um, the commission was supposed to deal with um, socioeconomic issues and, um, and corruption. And um, my interview partners would question that this was um, feasible and too much. And um, there was um, yeah, something that I, I don't uh, explore in the article, but there was an arbitration me mechanism supposed to deal with um, socioeconomic crimes. And um, eventually uh, there's lots of critique with how this um, yeah, arbitration me mechanism was carried out and this, that it was not transparent and therefore perpetuating um, intransparency and uh, perceptions of, of not doing things the proper way, which um, is of course problematic when you should deal with uh, yeah, intransparent practices like um, corruption. Mm -hmm. um, one of my, my interview partners, a politician in Tunisia said that it was almost a, a populist move to um, let the commission deal with the socioeconomic grievances and therefore also kind of promised that that these would be rectified via, via reparations eventually because this is not yeah, I mean, the reparations process um, has still not really started. So in, in theory, there is a reparations fund and in theory, reparations de decision have been sent out, but nobody really believes that payments will be made at some point. And so there, there is the, of, um, the issue of, of over-promising and, and making claims mm -hmm. and promises that um, people knew from the start that they would not be feasible. Um, another one is um, the issue of... Um, yeah, um, of reforms and of uh, reforms in, in, in certain sectors. And um, so the Truth Commission has a, also had a mandate to, to make recommendations about structural reforms um, in different sectors. And um, so this was, would of course uh, intersect with um, normal, yeah, um, normal policy making in that right. regard. And so the commissioners themselves are wondering how much power they actually have in terms of recommending um, economic reforms or reforms in the judiciary uh, when you have a legislative body that would also have um, its own ideas and struggles uh, and uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people who followed the, uh, the IVD, the, the Truth Commission, 
um, you know, they, they followed like the politics of it and all the internal divisions and the, the public battles around it. But in your article, it sounds like many of the, the problems they faced might have been more structural than personality driven, that this extensive mandate and these unrealistic expectations might have actually meant that this disappointment was, was always going to be almost built in to, to the process as it was conceived. Is that, more, is that right in terms of how you, how you and your, your um, uh, Tunisian interlocutors under, understood things by the end? Um, I, I think it's both. And I, I think you're right that um, the internal divisions and the external pressure as well, that these are the dimensions of, of conflict that um, are more explored and on which there's more focus. So uh, yeah, I, I wanted to draw attention to, to this different uh, dimension as well, to this third dimension that um, might have had led to problems. And I don't know whether I would say it was inbuilt. So, um, I mean, yes, for example, one of my interview partners, an international uh, transitional justice professional would would say, I have this quote in there, they could maybe do it if they were Sweden, but if they were Sweden, they wouldn't need it. And right. and so uh, if, we, if we take that quote, then um, there was an assumption that, uh, yeah, the issues uh, with with the overloading of the mandate um, would be in, in built, but then I, yeah, during recent follow up research, um, another interview partner, also a transitional justice professional, had a different opinion. Um, so they said that um, if they had focused more on getting getting things done rather than infighting, they they would have um, managed to actually get more done um, out of the mandate and uh, then it wouldn't have been so overwhelming probably. Um, so as I said, I, I wouldn't say that it uh, was yeah, doomed to fail from the beginning. And I, I would also say that I could sense that still people perceived it to be right that the socioeconomic issue, for example, it took such a prominent place because um, also social economic grievances were so prominent in Tunisia or still are, yeah. So in terms of uh, the, the research and uh, the lessons that you draw from Tunisia, um, what are the major implications then for the transitional justice community, scholars and practitioners? What, what do you hope that they take away uh, from this research? Um, I mean, uh, first of all, it's a, yeah, it's a sensitivity to the issue so that you can't just um, expand mandates uh, without thinking what this uh, have, uh, yeah, what consequences this might have. But then also maybe, um, as, I, as I say in the article, maybe one option would be to still consider um, the problems that needs to be addressed, but then figure out how to um, uh, not uh, let uh, the transition justice institutions tackle all of this, but how to make connections to other institutions in the transitional state that actually um, are, are working on these issues as well. And then maybe, yeah, seek connections and um, yeah, join forces with, with, other, with other fields. So I, I think that might be an avenue to, to explore. Well, thanks. Uh, we've been speaking with uh, Mariam Salehi about her new article on, on Tunisia's transitional justice uh, process. Mariam, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Mark, for having me. This is the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. On today's book segment, we're joined by John Waterbury, former president of the American University in Beirut, and now back at Princeton University. He's the author of Missions Impossible, Higher Education and Policymaking in the Arab World. Uh, John, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Mark. It's a great pleasure to be part of this podcast. I thought I might start with just a comment on the title of the book. Mm -hmm. It may sound a little bit cute, but it's actually quite serious, and it gets to the heart of some of the things I'm trying to accomplish in that book, looking at public policy and higher education. And I called it Missions Impossible because universities have been set a, a cluster of missions that are sometimes mutually incompatible and almost impossible to achieve. And I can best summarize that dilemma by referring to something called the trilemma, 
mm -hmm. where universities and the governments that are responsible for them have three choices that they can try to uh, achieve or try to meet. And that is high quality, large numbers or quantity, and reasonable cost. And it's in the nature of a trilemma that you can have two, but you can't have a third. And right. so to get two, you have to sacrifice the third. And in the, uh, in the MENA region and in the Arab world, what has been achieved is quantity, I would say reasonable cost, but at the expense of quality. And the book itself goes into the, the finer detail on these three basic elements and tries to understand the public policy drives that are behind the choices that have been made. So one of the things which is that really strikes you uh, in reading the book right away is just the the wide recognition of the scale and magnitude of the pedagogical failure of these university systems. So tell us a little bit about this. Why is it that people see these universities as having failed in their mission? What's the crisis? Well, it really depends on whose glasses you're looking through. Uh, I would say that the intelligentsia in the Middle East has a rather harsh uh, judgment of university and tertiary education in general. Uh, the mass public, at least through what we know from public opinion polls, is much more tolerant and forgiving of the deficiencies of Arab higher education. So uh, it's, it's not a unified uh, opinion that we find in the region itself. But I thought I was going to find a much more damaged system than I actually did. Uh, everything that has been identified as a problem with Arab higher education is to be found in virtually any country, including the United States. And I came to the conclusion that if there is something unique, a kind of Arab exceptionalism in higher education, it's the fact that all of the deficiencies combine in a, in a manner that makes the Arab world somewhat unique. I, I would just give one example here. The Arab world over many decades has consistently had the highest rate of unemployment of educated youth of any region in the world, including Sub-Saharan Africa. So there's, there's been a huge problem there, but the Arab world is not alone in having high youth unemployment. Again, to take an example that I think gets a little bit at the heart of this issue, after the, the big uh, economic crisis of 2008, Greece, Italy, Spain, Portugal, the Southern Mediterranean states, all experienced extremely high levels of youth unemployment, uh, almost as high as in the Middle East. But that turned out to be cyclical rather than structural. Mm -hmm. And within a certain number of years, the situation began to adjust and right itself so that youth unemployment uh, came down to more tolerable levels. In the Middle East, it stayed stuck. Indeed, when we look at Tunisia, uh, often touted as the one success story of the Arab uprisings or the Arab Spring, its youth unemployment rate has hardly budged since mm -hmm. before 2010, and it's still among the highest rates in the Arab world itself and in the world in general. So this is a structural problem that the Middle East and Arab world faces and has not come up with good solutions, but it, the Middle East is definitely not unique in trying to deal with this. Now you trace this back in part uh, to kind of the changing mission of what these universities are for. And so back in the old days, the, these were basically training civil servants. You got a public education and then you got a public sector job. And last 20 years or so, that pipeline has been broken. Absolutely, absolutely. I think there was even a prior phase, at least during the Nasserist era, where higher education was seen as a tool for transforming Arab youth into, uh, in Egypt, uh, a forward-looking progressive socialist um, uh, set of, of, of professionals who could sustain the regime. But that gave way pretty quickly. It had a very brief lifespan in, in Egypt and maybe a little bit longer in Syria and Iraq, uh, very brief in Algeria. 
but it was there prior to the civil service uh, mission, which lasted a long time and has only come to an end in an effective way in the last 10 years or so. Egypt has reduced its civil service by about a million since the Arab uprising in 2011. Algeria is following along and trying to reduce its civil service. Uh, but you're, you're absolutely right in stressing how important that has been to the social contract that these regimes established beginning in the 1950s. But then it's very hard for them to retool and start training students differently to get private sector jobs. Um, and you pointed out that uh, it's much more common. They end up either in the informal sector or leaving the country to seek work elsewhere, which really does seem a structural problem linking education and the job market. Absolutely. And, and of course, there's two hands clapping here. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the higher education institutions, uh, as you pointed out, have predominantly trained civil servants. I don't know how well, it doesn't seem to make a lot of difference, but they train civil servants. And now that escape route for their graduates is really no longer there. And the other hand of the two hands clapping is the private sector which has to share a lot of the responsibility for the employment problem because it, it's a private sector that in some ways doesn't have a lot of need for university graduates. Uh, the tourism sector doesn't need someone with a BA or an MA uh, to staff hotels and, and maintain basic tourist services. And that's a large area of employment in the contemporary Middle East, or it was at least until 2011. So the private sector has, um, has not been a source of high demand for the kinds of, of talents produced by the universities, even if the universities were doing a better job than they actually are. So I, I think it, it's also uh, important to note that the private sector is weak in a way because it was the, uh, the whipping boy of uh, many Middle Eastern regimes or Arab regimes in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, private sector activity was associated with greed and anti-socialism. And it was also seen as unnecessary in an era that emphasized state planning and the role of the public sector. And uh, the Arab world really hasn't gotten over that hump yet, but it's facing the issue of rehabilitating its private sectors and the result, as many people have noted, has not been a thriving, healthy, uh, dynamic private sector, but one that is characterized by crony capitalism. One of the things which is, which is really interesting is that you note that the, the Middle Eastern countries actually tend to spend a disproportionately high amount on higher education. It's not that they're neglecting it. It's just somehow not translating into the outcomes that uh, one might have expected. Exactly, poor return on investment. Uh, that doesn't seem to have bothered a lot of people, but uh, it is striking when you compare the Middle East to uh, other regions of the world. I think on average, about 5% of GDP or five plus percent of GDP on average in the Middle East goes to education. And uh, in Singapore, which has had been amazingly successful in its education system, it's about 3.5%. So Singapore seems to be getting a good return on its investment while most Arab countries aren't. I don't have a, uh, a great explanation for that, except to say that the governing or autocrats and their regimes don't care that much about the uh, effectiveness of the education system, so long as it doesn't pose a political threat to them. And that in many ways is the bottom line for university leadership in the Arab world and Middle East more generally, is to make sure that the university system supports the regime and is not threatening to it in some ways. And, and I think for, for those of us who are political scientists and focus on the politics, that's the part of the book that really resonates is the combination of on the one hand, that universities often are political threats, not just in the Middle East, but globally. You know, you got lots of smart young kids getting, you know, sitting around, getting uh, exposed to new ideas and all of that. 
Um, and at the same time, you have these very restrictive um, uh, limitations and restrictions on academic freedom and freedom in general in most of these countries. And does it tell us a little bit about, about your, how you grappled with that in the book? Yeah, well, one, one way I grappled with it was to try to read this sort of basic legislation on higher education in various countries. And it's quite, quite uniform, quite similar. And the basic ground rules set out for higher education are, are fine, they're laudable. They emphasize university autonomy. They emphasize academic freedom. They uh, talk about all the good things that we like to associate with university life. The problem is they are not put into practice. Universities do not have autonomy and academic freedom is a, a very fragile and usually non-existent element in university life in the, in the region. So uh, the, the bylaws and, and basic regulations uh, represent an alternate reality. It, it's, it, it doesn't represent what actually goes on on the ground. These institutions are highly political. The appointments of rectors and even deans uh, may have to go through cabinet review and cabinet approval. Uh, university presidents are highly political and some enjoy the rank of minister depending on the country. So these are political animals and you won't find that anywhere in their bylaws. Uh, it's just understood. Uh, I, I talked to some former leadership of the University of Damascus who described decision-making processes with the involvement of the Ba'ath Party in just about every aspect of university life. And uh, it, it meant that the, uh, the university president uh, had to make sure that he was always on the same sheet of music with the Ba'athi political leadership. And I think that's pretty common uh, just about everywhere in the, in the Arab world, and unfortunately, even until today. And then, and then you go and you know go down through the institution and uh, your descriptions of the of the process by which faculty are recruited and uh, promoted. It doesn't seem to really um, emphasize uh, research output or um, or excellence. Yeah, and this is this is one of the big questions that I look at. It's it's speculative for me. But we have, uh, we have just about everywhere in the Arab world systems of higher education, which are usually described as command and control systems, highly centralized in the Ministry of Education and Ministry of Finance with close oversight from the presidency or the, the leader of the country, uh, monarchs in, in some cases. Uh, and this command and control system does not allow significant autonomy to any of the units in the system itself. And I think most people, most academics like myself find this somehow abhorrent and uh, certainly suboptimal, but it was able to achieve a, a limited range of uh, outcomes, which for a time uh, sustained the regimes and the economies and the civil service and uh, brought about some socioeconomic uh, equalization in various societies. Now what we may be seeing, and this gets back to your question, is the gradual uh, liberation of universities, public universities. And I guess I should, as a footnote, stress that my focus is almost entirely on public universities in the Arab world and only incidentally private universities. But we may be seeing one in which universities are given greater autonomy to seek uh, independent sources of revenue for themselves, to promote sponsored research, to cooperate with the private sector and commercial ventures, uh, to try to develop independent characters for themselves, independent missions, getting back to the title of the book, independent missions which are now subsumed within the system itself. Everybody has basically the same mission, the same salary structure. There's no, there's no competition among public sector universities. And uh, that may be changing. And uh, that's one of the speculative points in, in my book that I wish I had uh, more firm answers for. 
uh, but we may be moving towards a new model. But based on your dissection of the obstacles to reform, it's hard to be optimistic. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm afraid it's hard to be optimistic about a lot of things right now in the, in the Arab world. I, of course, follow Lebanon very closely, and it's, it's gut-wrenching to see what's going on there. Mm -hmm. um, and everybody's got trouble. They, one, of the, one of the challenges in the book is the fact that three or four, maybe five major actors, depending on, on how you count, cannot provide accurate or trustworthy statistics about what's going on inside their own borders. And I'm thinking of Syria, Yemen, Libya, Iraq for quite some time when Daesh was uh, running large chunks of, of the Iraq. And uh, Lebanon, which isn't too bad at collecting statistics, is in total chaos at the present time. So we have major Arab actors uh, for whom we can only guess at the uh, evolution of their systems since 2011, 2010. So uh, it, it's really speculating on rather weak statistical grounds uh, when you try to look to the future. But yes, pessimism, I think, is the order of the day. That was actually a very interesting contribution of the book, simply pointing out that there is no central repository for this data, uh, no professional association. You had to go and collect this, this data as best you could. Um, and this might actually be one of the, the few places where this information is all brought together. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, uh, I remember my old mentor, Charles Asawi, uh, telling me that he did this when he worked for the United Nations. But I think I'm in a kind of closed loop on data. Uh, places like the World Bank and the ILO and UNESCO uh, often give uh, aggregate data on the Arab world and all regions of the world. And then I publish it and it may feed back to <laughs> these same sources, you know, so we, we kind of chase each other's tails. But yes, there is, even till now, as far as I know, no central repository for statistics on higher education in the Arab world. There are a lot of logical places to put it. Uh, ESQA would be one of them. There's the Arab Association of Universities would be another. Uh, and it would be lovely to have three or four sources that were reliable. But as of now, uh, we do not have them. So a lot of the time it's guesswork. Just, just to put a footnote to that, one of the statistics I was most interested in uh, was uh, dropout rates in uh, Arab that. universities. And um, that it, there, there really is very little uh, comprehensive information on dropout rates in, uh, in Arab universities. And this is a huge challenge for them, a great opportunity, I might add, if you could save the kids who are dropping out in large numbers uh, from tertiary education and give them at least a fighting chance of entering the, the job market. So if we're looking for things where things are done differently, you spend some time talking about what you call enclaves, um, where they are perhaps pursuing more of kind of the research-oriented um, uh, and uh, you know, more critical types of approaches to education. So what do you see happening with these enclaves? Well, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I, I think this is part of that uh, uh, challenge going forward with, that I mentioned just a few minutes ago. That is, are we moving away from the command and control system to one in which various individual institutions will be given some latitude, some autonomy uh, to develop a certain set of skills and a certain character that they can then uh, quite, quite frankly market and, and, and use to attract students. I'm not sure, it, it's not gonna come easily. I don't, think it, I don't think it meshes with the instincts of political leadership in the region, but we do see it in Saudi Arabia with KAUST, the, the King Abdullah uh, University of Science and Technology. Uh, we see it throughout the UAE, which I don't focus on very much in, the, uh, in my book. Uh, and then there are individual research centers uh, and sometimes some professional schools such as the 
Mohamedia School of Engineering in, uh, in Morocco, modeled to some extent on the Grands Ecoles of France, uh, that will be exceptions to the overall structure of uh, tertiary education. I just don't know if this is going to pro proliferate going forward or whether these are uh, just aberrations in the current system. The way you describe them, they seem intentionally aberrations so they can escape the politics of normal universities and just pursue excellence over here without it seeming to influence the, the core institutions. Yes, I think that's, that's right. They're, they can be much more directly controlled by central authorities than the universities themselves. Uh, recruitment of all personnel and of course their budgets are closely scrutinized and, and directly funded from the center. And you can pluck uh, university experts out of their university environment and put them into these research institutions. Both, most of them are applied research institutions and uh, closely control their activities, set their agendas and their, their research foci uh, and try to draw the benefits from that without any political risk. Now, you didn't really uh, talk about this as much in the book, as you just said, but I wonder if you could say a little bit about these American-style universities that have sprung up around the Gulf. Um, I mean, of course, you have AUB and AUC, and then you have uh, you know, the Qatar's Education City and uh, you know, various American universities in Kuwait and Sharjah. Um, how do you see this intersecting with these, uh, these public institutions? Is this, a, is this a possible thing which offers hope? Uh, that's a very good question. And I, uh, I should note that I was affiliated with uh, NYU Abu Dhabi for about three mm -hmm. years as a visiting professor. And I actually worked as an advisor to the government of Abu Dhabi on higher education prior to joining up with NYUAD. And I had to actually carry out a survey of all of the um, foreign partners that were involved in higher education, including in Qatar and Bahrain and Oman and, and the UAE itself uh, and Kuwait. So I have a, a, at least a passing acquaintance with what's going on. Uh, it's hard to uh, generalize about those institutions. Uh, a lot of what the UAE was doing was to make sure that the diplomas that were granted by their foreign partners were in fact the same as the home institution. This was not some kind of uh, local uh, exotic uh, diploma, but rather uh, when you got your NYU uh, uh, BA or MA or any, any diploma, it was exactly equivalent and would be treated as such by the home institution in New York. And a number of the uh, branch op operations are exactly that, branch operations. They are fully controlled academically and in terms of student recruitment uh, by the mother institutions, wherever they are. And I think this was part of the effort to uh, have the quality control uh, in the hands of these uh, reputable, uh, highly visible institutions so that the local partners could say, look, we're bringing you world-class education here and the diplomas prove it. Uh, then we have a, another set that you alluded to, like the American University of Cairo, American University of Beirut, and I think very much so the American University of Sharjah, uh, which are not in partnership with, with any foreign institutions and not under the supervision academically or otherwise of any foreign institution. They are uh, fully responsible for their own programs and their own missions and their own strategic planning. And uh, I've been really impressed, to be honest, to, to see the development of the American University of Sharjah. It's uh, becoming a first-rate uh, university. And um, I, I think the, uh, the ruler there should be quite happy with what he's been able to achieve. So, but in terms of who they service and, uh, and, and what kind of education they're providing, 
is this something which might be able to bridge this gap between the educational system and this kind of rapidly evolving private sector job market? Oh, oh, for sure. I, th I think for sure. But uh, you're, you're right on the edge of a, a really big question and one for which I never had an answer when I was living in the Gulf. That is, what do you do about the fact that, say, at the American University of Sharjah last time I looked, that was some years ago, I think something like 60% of their students were non-Emirati. Mm -hmm. And when you go to NYUAD, it's an even smaller percentage that are Emirati, at least as of say four or five years ago. And that is because these institutions, particularly NYU had to apply the same admissions uh, criteria as they apply to their own, to the applicants in, in uh, the United States. And Emirati students just didn't do as well in that kind of head-to-head -head competition. That I think is a huge challenge to make sure that these institutions are relevant to their local populations and not responding to the demand of uh, expat, the expat workforce, or in the case of NYUAD, uh, the world as a whole. I, I, I was absolutely astounded at the international uh, profile of NYUAD students. They literally came from every country in the world and uh, uh, were all of very high quality. Let me ask you one last question. Um, and that's uh, going like to the end of the book uh, where you, you don't aim to just describe uh, these problems. You actually have some suggestions for what might be done. So, you know, if you, if you were putting on your advisor to the king hat, you know, what should be done to try and fix the problems of public higher education? Yeah, uh, I, felt, I felt a little guilty in writing the book because I, I realized, if I hadn't realized before, that I'm an incrementalist in most kinds of change. I, I don't believe in the sort of big bang changes. Um, so I, I have a whole section in the book called The Reformer's Dilemma. Mm -hmm that you're, de you're dealing with leaders who have created a kind of crisis. And if I don't like the leadership and its style, I might say, let the crisis worsen until it overwhelms them and then they'll be blown away and maybe something good will come of it. Well, I'm not so sure. And certainly people in the policy world don't have that luxury to say, let the crisis just get worse. They gotta try to help the leadership uh, deal with the crises at hand, even though it may be distasteful. So a lot of what I said was in that vein, and I had a, a whole series in the conclusion, which I call politically non-threatening reforms. And they're, they're mainly reforms that could be take, undertaken within individual institutions of higher learning. Uh, and they wouldn't threaten, they wouldn't cross political red lines in the, the countries involved. Uh, and they're, they're pretty mundane. They're the kinds of things you'd want to do anywhere, uh, including in the United States. So enhance teacher training for PhDs, increase the weight of teaching and performance evaluations, train university instructors in identifying student aptitudes and modes of learning, integrate policy planning to focus on the transition from secondary to tertiary education and down a rather long list. I just want to, want to come back to one other issue on that list, which I think is particularly promising, potentially promising for both the political leadership and university leadership in the Middle East and Arab world. And that is dropouts. We think, even though the statistics are weak, that something like 40 or 50% of all students who matriculate in higher education do not complete their undergraduate degrees in, in the Arab world in the Middle East. Uh, that's, that's high, but it's not off the charts by world standards or even by the US standards. So why is this such an opportunity? Well, first of all, it's a huge economic cost because you're dumping kids back into the job market who have received half, of half an education or even a quarter of an education at considerable expense to the body politic and to the government. And they may be unsuited for just about any gainful employment other than uh, unskilled labor. So there's a, 
a huge financial drain when when you have say a third of your students dropping out after the first year of study, which seems to be the pattern, you're, you're maintaining teaching staff, which in some ways is superfluous. You recruit your teaching staff on the assumption that you're going to retain all the students that you admit, and then you lose 30% of them. What do you do with the people on contract? Even, the, even if, as adjuncts, you have to wait a while before you can unload them from your budget. So this is a, a tremendous loss, both socially and institutionally in the, uh, in the Arab world. And trying to devise ways of increasing retention uh, would be a huge step forward. And it can't be politically threatening because those kids that you're trying to retain have already been admitted to university. They've already shown that they want to go and that they have some motivation to seek higher education and the qualifications that come with it. And so you're, you would be urging public authorities to simply salvage uh, these, these, these human elements that can be a huge addition to the economy and to the society as a whole. Well, great. We've been speaking with John Waterbury uh, about his new book, Missions Impossible, Higher Education and Policymaking in the Arab World. John, thanks for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much, Mark. Thanks.